This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. Thank you for the good song service. Everybody singing out and singing together. That makes for a good education. Thank you all for being here. For the second in a series of three lessons about conflict resolution. Last night we talked about the root causes of conflict. And I think the audio that's available for anybody that has it. I will avail the PowerPoint slides. I can send through the hours. Somebody needs to watch those while they listen. Whatever, whatever helps you, that's what we're about. Tonight we're going to talk about biblical practical steps towards actually resolving conflict. A lot of times when we have a, a study of this nature, we, you know, an obvious place to turn is Matthew 18. I think most of us are pretty familiar with that one. You know, if your brother's wrong, you, you go and you talk to them, and that passage walks us through that process, and we break that down, and that's good. We need to do that, and we're going to talk about that a little bit tonight, but that won't be the, the core of our study. There's so much more to be said. We, we need to live by the principles that are taught in that passage, but sometimes life gets messy, and that crisp one, two, three step that he tells us to take there. It doesn't work out as clearly as what the Lord wants it to. And so we've got to devote ourselves to other principles that will help us honor what that passage teaches. Sometimes I may take those steps and think a problem is fixed and somebody is getting me the cold shoulder for two years afterwards. And I thought everything was right. And it's kind of elusive and invasive. And it's like, wait, is there still a problem? I thought this worked out. I've been there before. I thought I made my apologies. I thought they made their apologies. It's just something not right. And before long, kind of my feelings are a little bit on the sleep. And the next thing you know, I'm kind of hurt about some little something gets said. And I, I take that as sort of gouge and jab. And then I'm like, wait, do I need to go live again? Or wait, if I do that, am I just stirring up trouble? Maybe I'm paranoid. Have any of y'all ever been through that kind of thing? Of course we have. Tonight, Sunday, we're going to talk about a lot of those kind of principles and things that I hope from the scriptures will help us understand where one another, where we're all coming from as we work through resolving conflict. So, uh, Proverbs 23 says, It's honorable for a man to stop striving since any fool can start a quarrel. Boy, did we have it backwards and how God has it. We think. I don't mean that we're we're married to this idea in a logical way, but from a fleshly standpoint, we tend to think that the honorable thing to do is win. <laughs> win the fight. That's honorable, right? Then you can kind of, you may not dog, but you can kind of struggle a bit. Because what? Any fool can do that. <laughs> what God sees as honor and what God sees as folly is versus how we see it, that's pretty different. In our brokenness, we see the honorable thing as being able to start and finish, you know, the quarrel. 
But God sees the honorable thing is to stop it. Stop it in the tracks. And if it's gone a little further and gotten out of hand, to stop it there. Wherever it's at along the timeline of things kind of getting worse, to be able to, to be devoted to the idea of stopping it. And something that I mentioned last night, that I, I think we're going to see again tonight in, in scriptural teaching about dealing with problems and conflict and strife at the heart of a, a lot of what the Bible says is keeping it as small as possible and keeping it as brief as possible. And you know, if it's going to get bigger than a smaller circle of people, there better be a really good godly reason for that. And if it's going to take a little longer to work it out, there better be really good godly reasons that it's taking more time. The godly thing to do is to, to shut it down and limit it. Containment, containment, containment. And that's what this passage teaches us in spirit. So before we ever get started on the idea of confronting somebody or being confronted, I want to start out and say, let's make sure it's really a problem. Proverbs 3 and verse 30, Do not strive with a man without cause, if he has done you no harm. Now, why would the Lord bother to tell us to don't strive with others if there's no reason? Well, I'll tell you why. Because he knew there would be days that I would show up for church in a bad mood. He knew that. He knew there would be days that I'd show up for church and my feelings would be wrong because I had a conflict with somebody a week ago last Tuesday. He knew I would show up with my feelings on the edge because, you know, my grass ain't growing straight or, you know, my stocks aren't performing well or, you know, something's going wrong. He knew that. And he knew there would be times that with those swings of mood and the come and go and ebb and flow of our emotions that I would see problems when there weren't really problems. Or I would make bigger problems out of things that really weren't that big of a deal. Make a mountain out of a molehill, I think is the way we say that sometimes. And so he's telling me, don't go in there to start stirring things up thinking you're solving problems when there's really not that big of a deal in the first place. So before I ever start resolving a conflict, I need to stop and ask myself, is there really a conflict? Or is part of this, I kind of let my imagination run away with me. You can't believe when you get people sharing stories. You can't believe the, the stories you'll hear shared. And I heard a story one time, and I won't go into too much detail, but two sisters in the Lord that were really close and had a great relationship. And, and they, they were at church one day, and one of them had a little something, something rather had gone wrong. And they were upset and didn't want to show that. They were kind of embarrassed to show that in front of a, a crowd of people. So after services, the other one had said something to her and she didn't hear it. And she was busy in her mind trying to slip out of the crowd and get to the car and deal with whatever it was that she had just learned or had happened. And the person thought, well, well, you know. And it went on for years that they were mad at each other. Nobody knew why. It wasn't really anything in the first place. No, nothing had really happened. It was just a misunderstanding. Well, how many times do we have to pull out the word misunderstanding and dust it off and use it again and say, it was just, you know, a misunderstanding. Well, that's what he's saying. 
stop and think before you start heading into somebody saying, we got a problem, we need to fix this. You don't think. Is there really a problem? Proverbs 25, verse 8 and 9, do not go hastily to court. For what will you do in the end when your neighbor has put you to shame? Debate your case with your neighbor and do not disclose the secret to another. Now I know this is talking about civil dispute. And we're, when we're talking about having harmony in the church, it's not so much an issue of civil dispute, although unfortunately it can come to that. That's not what, in the main, that's not what we're talking about. But think about Proverbs of Solomon written in a theocratic government where part of the intent of Old Testament Scripture was governing how they lived as citizens. And so some of the things that they faced with one another as citizens of the nation of Israel were matters that would wind up in court. And so what he's talking about within the framework of their lives, we can take the framework of that principle and plug it in here and say, well, I'm not going to go hastily to bicker with somebody. I'm not going to go hastily to confront somebody in a way that's going to make problems worse. I'm going to stop. And what am I going to do? I'm going to contain it. Contain it. Debate your case with your neighbor. I'm going to go to someone privately and say, you know, is there a problem? Am I the problem? Let's talk about this. And keep it small and keep it short. So first, before I take any steps, I've got to make sure that there really is a problem before I start, you know, thinking about <clears throat> escalating the problem in the name of solutions. And that means to forbear. I've got to learn to forbear. Colossians 3, 12 and 15. <clears throat> Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, <clears throat> and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so also must you do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let you know that. Pull that out and reread it from time to time as you need. This is just packed full of good counsel that centers on the idea of us loving one another. And what happens when we love one another? The peace of God rules our heart instead of strife ruling our hearts. And so what all does that love involve? Tender mercies. Bearing with one another. And this is not the only place in the New Testament he tells us to bear with one another or forbear one another. Now I want to ask a similar question about this. Why would the Lord tell us more than once that we have to forbear each other? Because He knew people would get on each other's nerves. And forbearing each other means there are going to be things that this other person, my counterpart, does that I don't like. And it annoys me. And it gets on my nerves. And sometimes I get really aggravated about it. And He's telling me, learn to forbear that. And if that's more than what I can forbear, then after I've made sure that it's, it's really a bigger issue and it really can't just be something that we forgive and care about each other and let the peace of God rule our hearts and move on, if it really is bigger than that, then you talk to them. Well, the idea of forbearing, that means, you know, somebody's got to forbear me. Well, how dare they be annoyed by me? Now, I want to ask you to think something. Do you ever get on your own nerves? 
think about it. There are things about me I don't like. I'm going to tell you, if Michael ever chewed his tongue in half in church, right now he's chewing his tongue in half, trying to keep quiet. There are things about me I don't like. Why should it be such a shock to me that there are things about me that others don't like and they have to prepare? I've got to learn to roll with that stuff. Well, with some people, that's easier than it is others. You know, I can walk through the house and see something that, you know, my wife left laying here out of place and it was supposed to be over there, and I kind of feel annoyed. I could walk through the house and find where one of the grandkids left something laying there and think, well, isn't that precious? <laughs> Why? Well, when you cultivate the relationship to be more what it's supposed to be, it gets easier to prepare. And look at that and say, you know, you ever talk to a widow or a widower and they get far enough along in their grief, they start telling you about things about their spouse that really annoy them and then they start bawling, telling you how much they miss that. That thing that got on their nerves. Not the other stuff, but that. Love. And that's what he's teaching us to learn to be like with one another. And that comes with a sense of tender heartedness where I'm approaching it with a realism that, hey, there's things about me I don't like, so there have got to be things about me you don't like. If not yet, give it time. <laughs> and there are things about you, too. And we're going to learn from there as much as we can. And we're going to learn to forgive. He says in Proverbs 10 and 12, hate stirs up strife, but love covers all sin. So on the one hand, you've got stirring up strife, and on the other hand, you've got covering sin. You've got forgiveness. You've got, here, let me see that mess that the grandkids let me pick that up and go put it up. And then let me, you know, help them learn to do better. And to put it in the context of that relationship. We'll remove it from that relationship and put it in the context of our relationships. Sometimes there needs to be a confrontation. Sometimes there needs to be a difficult conversation. But sometimes we need to just forgive. Proverbs 17 and 9, He who comes to transgression seeks love. But he who repeats a matter separates friends. Drink it in. Learn to forgive instead of learning to repeat. I know sometimes we've got to talk about our problems. We understand that. We find abundant example of that in the New Testament. But let's work on the forgiveness angle. Let me put it to you this way. One time, years after I was growing, I was talking to Mom about some instances of that some might interpret as misbehavior on my part when I was a child. <clears throat> and I, you know, I told Mom, I said, that that was kind of and I did the particular instance I was talking about, I didn't get in trouble for it. And I said, Mom. Why didn't you cut the switch and quit me? I mean, I, I really needed that. And she said, listen to me, son. If I quit you every time I needed it, that's all I'd ever done all your years growing up, just going around with me. I had to let some things go. She wouldn't say, what does she mean? It's the truth. That says something to me about relationships. We gotta learn that we can't just go around blowing up at each other every time something gets on our nerves. 
We've got to learn to forbear and forgive. Forbear doesn't mean stay mad while I quietly tolerate it and avoid blowing up. That means forgiving. I've got to make sure I try to take these steps and it's a small enough problem that I can take this option. And in the process of that, I need to have patient optimism. Proverbs 20 and 30 says, Blows that hurt cleanse away evil, as do stripes the inner depths of the heart. I've done a fair bit of study on this passage and how it's translated because there's some questions about exactly how to translate the Hebrew here. If you remember the King James wording on this, it says, in the blueness of the wound there is healing. And there's a question, you know, is he saying that when you see evidence around a wound of, you know, like swelling and, and discoloration, that that's a sign that it's really going okay, that things are getting better. Or there's a question of, if you're kind of, you know, if you're taking a beating when the stroke falls, it hurts, but in the long run, it's helping you. You're learning and you're growing. Whichever way you take that, the idea is sometimes pain and painful things are our way of growing. Okay? You look at an injury and you shut it up, but it's swelling. And then somebody that knows their medicine says, well, that's actually a good sign because that means, you know, A, B, and C and the blood and the thing and the tissue is doing in your immune system and blah, blah, blah. And they understand all that stuff. And so even though it might look kind of bad, that can be good news. And that's the way it can be when something's hurting me. Whether that's me being annoyed or whether that's me being told something about me that I don't like to hear. Sometimes there can be healing in that. So I need to have a sense of patience and a sense of optimism that just because it's hurt, just because I'm feeling raw, doesn't mean that great injustices are happening. That might be a good thing. And I need to be willing to be optimistic and be patient as we work our way through this. Let's look at it like this. I'm going to put a couple figures up here. <clears throat> and you've got this person and this person, and they both have their struggles in their heart. They both have their flaws and their failings, and you know we're in this house of flesh, and you know, we're struggling to do the right thing, and we've got you know, all those kind of things we talk about. And there's something that needs to be said. The person on your left needs to tell that other person about a problem. And it, it's a negative message, and it's something that you know, it could be hurtful to that other person. And here's what happens. The person that's doing the talking brings their struggle to their words, whether they want to or not. My struggle colors the way I choose my words or the way I say my words. I can fight it. I can try to reword it in my head. I can rehearse it, and that's great. I need to do that and, and obsess over saying it in the right way, but at the end of the day, the person hearing me needs to understand that I'm bringing my struggle the way I'm saying my words. And as I talk to them and watch them roll their eyes as they listen to me, let's think about the way we listen. We've got a problem here in our culture. We mistakenly believe that the person who's listening and gets their feelings hurt has the moral high ground and they're automatically right. Because they got their feelings hurt. Well, that may be true. They may be right in that instance. But it's not automatically true that just because someone told you something that you didn't like, that that automatically means that you're, you're, you were wrong and that they 
we're wrong to say what they said because in the way that we listen, we bring our struggle to how we hear what the other person says. And I mean, my wife can say something passive and with the least thought of controversy on her mind. And because of what my day has been like that day, I'll assume she meant something different and I brought my struggle to how I hear it. I'm, I'm like, oh, yeah, well, what, you know? And she's, what? We bring our struggle to how we hear things just as much as we bring our struggle to how we say things. And all these passages we've been reading teach us that we need to speak and we need to listen with a sense of mutual love and understanding. Make sure. And let's approach all of this with that thought in mind and a patient optimism. You know, if we're both committed to the love of Christ, we may really be frustrated with each other, but it's going to be all right because we're both committed to walking with Christ. In Proverbs 18 and 19, a brother offended is harder to win than a strong city, and contentions are like the bars of a castle. And I look at that, and I revisit my notes, and I think, now why did I say that teaches optimism? <laughs> because he didn't say it's impossible, he just said it's hard. Are we getting this? I don't care how dark it feels. I don't care how hopeless that moment feels. I don't care what river of tears we cry. It's not impossible to make it better when we're both committed to Christ. So let's be patient and keep working. But what if I figure out that I wronged someone? Jesus talked about that in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verse 23 through 26. Therefore, if, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. When you read that, that's a pretty rapid escalation, isn't it? And Jesus is telling us what to do if we figure out we've wronged something. This idea of laying your gift at the altar, that imagine is a scenario that was common in their world, and that is them bringing the gift to the temple and making more or less of a monetary or a physical donation of the temple. It was a way of them offering a devotion to God. Well, we don't just do that when we contribute to church. We, we do that just when we worship. We're making our offering. And so as we apply this, in principle to ourselves, we're understanding he's teaching us that a, a rift in our relationships with others can become deep enough that it hinders my ability to give acceptable worship to God. That's serious. And so if it occurs to me that I've wronged somebody, then I need to go to them and say, hey, I, I think I did wrong to you, but I want to I make it right. 
And if all that's left that I'm able to do is apologize, and I've got to do that much, but if there's other ways I can, you know, do something to help, I've got to do that. Now let's make some analysis of this. First of all, this is not about somebody getting their feelings hurt. This is not about I figured out that I annoyed them. Okay? Because I have news for you. We all annoy each other, okay, at some time or another. If this is bigger than that, go back in your mind to earlier in the study. Before we get to this point, let's make sure there's really a problem and it's really a deal and it's not something we can just forgive and prepare. But when we realize, look, I'm really wrong somebody, I, this is not just hurting their feelings. The context speaks of a matter that would result in a court case and a guilty verdict. And Jesus talked about somebody going to jail. Now I'm not saying this only, you know, deals with offenses that get you, could get you thrown in jail. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say the way Christ played that out in his hypothetical scenario showed. This is about bigger issues. This is not about just, well, I don't like the way you looked at me the other day. It's about more than that. So if I realize I'm wrong somebody in that kind of a degree. Second, this confrontation is so important the passage suggests is the failure to reconcile and hinder worship. So think about that and feel motivated. Now sometimes we've got to swallow our pride like that self, don't we? Hey, that hurts. That hurts for me to have to go to somebody and say, look, I... I think I was probably unfair with you. I, I think I may have mistreated you. I think I may have wronged you. And I'm here to apologize. That hurts. And the blueness of that wound is healing. And if your pride is wounded, let it bleed. It needs dying anyway. Okay, so think about that. Third, the end goal is reconciliation. It's not about vindicating yourself or proving your point or helping someone else vindicate themselves or help them feel like they proved their point or that they won or that we won or anything like that. It's about reconciling. Containment. Containment of the issues. It is about peace and God's family and us learning to have greater harmony. To do this, I've got to have that humility. Proverbs 29 and 23, a man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. We're afraid we'll look bad. We're afraid we'll look like we got out waterworkers. We're afraid we'll be humiliated if we go and say, look, I think I was wrong in what I said or did. We're afraid of that. And he said, if you'll just humble yourself, you won't experience all those things you'll fear. You fear. You'll experience honor. And that's honor from God. That's honor that lasts. That's honor that's bigger than the momentary buzz of winning an argument. That's honor that is sustained. And so if I wrong someone, I've got to go to them to try to fix it. And I've got to go with a willingness to listen. Because if that wrong is big enough and it's been bugging them, and I come to them, that they might see that as an opportunity to look. You know, say, look, you really hurt me. You need to understand. I, I appreciate your apologizing for this. But there's also this, 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 and this. 
And I need to go read and listen. Proverbs 9 and 8 tells me the kind of person that's my goal to be. Do not correct a scoffer lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. My goal is not to be the guy that gets mad and hates somebody because they corrected me and, and, and told me more about what I did wrong. My goal is to be that wise man that genuinely loves and appreciates someone helping them see their fall. Look, we got to set high goals here. And I'll just, I'll be honest with you, there are times and there are conflicts where my goal is, see if you can't identify with this, my goal is if I can just keep from blowing my stack. My goal is to just graciously, quietly receive their correction. Okay, that's good to have that goal, but the goal in this passage is we need to rise even higher than that and get beyond it where I can manage to hear correction without getting mad. And I need to learn to love it and want it. I need to learn to love it and love the people that help me understand where I'm wrong. And I'm going to tell you something in the world that is bizarre. But in the family of God, we understand. Because we're always struggling to see, well, where exactly did I make a mistake? And in sincerity, we're wanting to understand where we need to grow. Then why would we not want to hear those voices that help us answer those questions? And those voices are our trusted fellow family of God. Proverbs 28 and 23, He who rebukes a man will find more favor afterward than he who flatters with the tongue. The commendation and the flattery, those may have their purpose in some frame of encouragement, but the real value comes from those who tell us what we may not be comfortable in the moment to hear. Did someone wrong you? This is where we get to Matthew 18. Matthew 5 talks about if I wrong someone else. Matthew 18 is if someone wronged me. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. <coughs> if he hears you, you have gained your brother. If he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses to hear the church, let him be, be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Okay, so he walks us through the process. And that's how the Lord wants it to work. That's his will. And we as people, we can mess that process up. And it doesn't always end the way it's supposed to. Because somewhere along the way, somebody's not honoring the principles that the Lord teaches. So let's look at these things more closely. First of all, this is not about somebody getting their feelings hurt. This is not about, I don't like the crooked look you gave me. It's not about petty and trivial things. The word translated trespass in the King James Version means a sin. That's why the New King Translator, the New King James Translator translated that word sin. If someone sins against you, this is about an actual sin, a violation of the will of God that is of a nature that hurts you directly. So make an easy illustration. You know, covetousness is a sin. So if somebody in their covetousness cheated you in business, that would be an example of a trespass that is against you or a sin that is against you. Ultimately, all sin is against God. But 
but sometimes sins have a particular effect against another person. Some will not be the victim, so to speak, of our sin. And so that's what this passage is talking about. Second, the process is to start small as possible and each step is a gradual increase. Containment. Containment, we're trying to keep it as small as we can and we're trying to keep it as brief as we can. Third, the goal is to gain your brother. Reconciliation. And that's the gladness in this passage. If he hears you, you gain your brother. And that's why he's teaching us to want, to want to reconcile, to want to gain our brother, to want. Remember the stages of last night? We get from the ceasefire to peace, to finally to harmony. It's not about being right, giving somebody a piece of your mind, successfully portraying yourself as a victim, or feeling any kind of vindication. Sometimes we have an ungodly quest for a feeling of vindication. I mentioned that last night sometimes. I want so much to feel vindicated. And I just want them to know that I did this thing and that I didn't do that thing. I want to feel vindicated. I need to let God take care of that. I need to worry about bringing honor to God and quit worrying about bringing honor to myself and being vindicated. If I'll turn in humility and put honor on God, He'll take care of me getting whatever else I need when I need it. Okay? And so the goal is not to go in here with guns blazing, thinking that this is for our own gratification. This is about solving problems and helping people. And that is the framework of love that defines how we go about this. And this must be done in a spirit of meekness then. Galatians 6, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. That word that's translated gentleness is a word that carries the notion of meekness. Meekness and gentleness aren't really that far apart in terms of what they convey. There's an idea of humility here. Now, this passage overlaps with Matthew 18. It's not exactly aligned with it in, in the sense of being about the same in every scenario, all represented with a Venn diagram. Matthew 18 is when someone is personally wrong to me with a sin they committed or wrong you. Galatians 6 is where they're overcome with some sin that may or may not have wronged me, and they overlap in the area where they're overcome with a sin that has wronged me. So I might go and I might confront as per Matthew 18 because they've done something wrong and it's affected me in a negative way. Or I might go in the spirit of Galatians 6 and 1 just because I see they've got a problem and I care about them and I want to help them. So not all confrontations are about I've been wrong. Some of them are about they need help. And all confrontations ultimately have that as the motive Gain that brother. Because what does that language imply? That whether I wanted it to be or not, I've lost my brother. And I'm going to tell you, if I've lost my brother and I love like I'm supposed to, I'm going to gain that brother back. So there is the idea behind a lot of this is the motive is not just about me getting gratification. The motive carries with it also the idea of helping that person. 
So I've got to go in love. Proverbs 27, verse 5 and 6 teaches us something about the curious nature of love. When he says, open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. So when I go to talk to a person, I go in love, I need to understand that what I'm going to do and what I'm going to say may hurt them. It might hurt to hear what we need to hear. If someone comes to me in that spirit of the Galatians 6 1 or the personal offense of Matthew 18, I got to accept that just because they hurt me doesn't mean I've all of a sudden got the high ground. That might mean they love me in a way that I need to be loved. Seek the friends that are willing to do this and tell you what they know hurts, but they care so much they can't help but tell you. I'm going to tell you a story to illustrate the kind of friends you need. Uh, during the time that Tanya and I had COVID, she lost her sense of smell and taste. And uh, there were those that thought she lost her sense of taste when she agreed to marry me, but <laughs> that question was settled when COVID was done. She, she couldn't smell or taste anything. Well, we got better and we, we needed to go out and I was about out of cologne, so I'm like, oh, I need some more cologne. So we're at the store and there's this sale rack that has this cologne. And I said, you know, does this smell okay here? And she's like, I can't smell it. Oh, yeah, right, sorry. So there's this other lady there shopping. And I said, I need your help. My wife and I have gotten over COVID. She can't smell. And so I need to know, does this smell all right? You know, and she's like, yeah, that smells good. She was there shopping for her son. So I thought I can trust her to him. She said, yeah, it smells good. So I took that home and I wore some and I went and visited a friend. This person, it's a younger person that spent time in our summer work and just good friend, good person. We, we, we've been through a lot of things together and studied together and done a lot of work together. And so I asked this young lady, I said, you know, I was wearing a cologne. I said, I, I, I just bought this cologne and I told about the lady at the store. And I said, that, you know, she said it smelled good, but I'm not so sure. And this girl looked at me and said, yeah, it's central bad. <laughs> I mean, that hurt. That was a big jug of cologne and it cost me seven bucks. <laughs> We're talking a big financial loss here. In a lot of cologne. I mean, I appreciate her a lot in that moment. Because I knew Tanya's sense of smell is coming back someday. And when it does, I want this to be a good thing, okay? Those are the kind of friends you need. Now that's a flippant example of other things I can count on her for. I can count on her to be that honest when it really means something. And she can count on me too. We don't need to run from those relationships. We need to seek from them. So it might hurt to hear what we need to hear. But let's follow that up based on things we've learned. Hurt can make us feel like the victim. And if we're a victim, that means the other person must be wrong, right? And so then if they're wrong, that means we're right, right? 
And in that sense, victimhood can feel powerful. And how broken is our culture today in celebrating victimhood and everybody is having a race to the imaginary finish line to see who can be the biggest victim. And there's a reason for that. Because in victimhood, people feel a false sense of power. Because if I'm a victim, that means I've been wronged, and that means you're wrong and I'm right, and so all of a sudden my pride has been elevated. And we think we don't do that. Not sorry, folks. We do. And that feeling of power can feed our pride. So we've got to be careful, and we've got to, with maturity and grace, in the blueness of the womb, there's healing. The process of working through these things and finding godly solutions and resolving conflict can be painful. We also need to remember there's always two sides. Really more than two sides. But there's always, let's just read it in Proverbs 18 and 17. The first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. How many times have you seen that played out? Now, I just want to tell you, don't make assumptions until you get more information. And I want to tell you about problems. When there's complicated problems, even people at the epicenter of the problem don't have all the information that informs you about what's really going on. There's always another perspective. There's always another side of the story. And when that other perspective and that other side of the story seems so different than the one you just heard, don't run around assuming that somebody's a liar. Remember we talked about that last night. Sometimes we emphasize the parts of the details that are screaming to us, and we emphasize those parts of the story that make us feel justified in standing where we're standing. And in doing that, we may overlook things that are important facts to somebody else that's seeing it from a different perspective. <clears throat> so you've got three people, and they're all going to tell you about the same thing. They're going to tell you about the same thing. And this first lady up here at the top, she's going to say, let me tell you, it's all about this square up on the wall that's surrounded by blue light. And that's what it is, and that's what I saw, and that's what I heard, and I'm telling you, I'm telling you the truth. And anybody that says anything besides square on the wall surrounded by blue light is lying to you. And another lady comes along and says, bless her heart, she never could really get it right. There's a circle on the wall, and it's surrounded by yellow light. And whether it's her or anybody else telling you anything different, they're lying to you because I saw it. I was there. I'm at the middle of it. I was personally involved. I'm an eyewitness. And I'm an ear witness. And I know this for a fact. It's a circle on the wall and it's surrounded by yellow light. And somebody else comes along and says, you wouldn't believe this spiritual object that's floating in the middle of the room. Now I'm sitting here looking at those three stories trying to make sense of it. And I don't want to believe that sister in Christ was a liar. And I don't want to believe the second one's a liar. And I don't want to believe the third one's a liar. And so I keep looking and I keep thinking and I keep remembering there's always more to the story than what you're seeing, even if you're in the middle of the story, until I finally get the real picture. Everybody's telling the truth from the perspective of the part that they're seeing. 
I'm not saying nobody ever lies. That's not my point. My point is let's take the high ground and be willing to realize that if someone wronged me, there might be more of the story that made some things make sense to them that I didn't realize. And so when I go to them in the spirit of meekness, that means I'm going realizing they may have a perspective to offer that could inform me a little bit. Okay? Romans 12 and 18 caps it off well. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Now I'm going to ask the same question about this passage that I asked about a few other passages. Why on earth would he say this to us? Because he knew there would be some people that wouldn't want peace. And there's some people, there's no amount of sacrificing, there's no amount of bleeding, there's no amount of loving, there's no amount of trying, there's no amount of crying you can do to fix it because they don't want it fixed. And what this passage is telling us is if there's a problem, you just make sure that you're not the reason. And I want to give that to you tonight. If there's conflict and you can't get over the hump on it and you can't get it resolved, you just make sure you're not the reason that you can't get it resolved. As much as is on our part, as much as depends on us, let's be at peace with others. And if somebody's that obnoxious, obstinate, hard to get along with person, let them be that person as much as they're going to be beyond any general reprimand that you might give, and you just back up and love them in the Spirit of Christ and move on. I hope that our study of conflict resolution has offered some fresh and godly perspectives for you to think about. I hope as we think about these things, we think about the greatest resolution of conflict that's ever happened, and it happened on the cross. And it happened by Jesus taking blame that belonged to me to you. I like that sinking. That's how he resolved the conflict between us and God. Is he took our blame. Does that not inform us? I hope you're a recipient of the blessing that that sacrifice offers in being a Christian tonight. And if you're not, I'm going to encourage you to come one now. If we can help you in that way or some other spiritual way, come have a seat on the front while we stand and sing. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.